Welcome to the Self-Evident and Forgotten Podcast, a show with conversations on the truths of liberty and odd opinions. We're your hosts, Stanton, Christy, and Cody. As always, the opinions we express are ours and ours alone, and they don't necessarily reflect those of our employers or any other organization we may belong to. Wherever you are, and however you're listening and whatever you're doing, thanks for tuning in. Now relax and enjoy the show. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Self-Evident and Forgotten. We're your hosts, Stanton, Christy, and Cody. Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg has died. President Trump has nominated Amy Coney Barrett to the Supreme Court. And we here at SEF are wondering, why is everyone losing their damn minds? Welcome to our very jam-packed episode. But first, the random question of the episode, Christy and Cody... If you could, financial cost not being a factor or a problem, would you volunteer to be part of an interstellar colonization effort? <laughs> Say, the moon or Mars. Oh, man. Mm. Uh, yeah, I'm going to go for it. I'm going to go ahead and do it. Um, the hesitancy is like, I'm assuming I'm not going to be able to come back. Yeah, that's kind of the thing. So I'm... <laughs> Pretty much leaving behind all of my friends and family, which sounds like it would kind of suck. Mm-hmm. But I could draft the Articles of Confederation for the moon. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like that could be awesome. So new landed interest. <laughs> maybe I could help the moon uh, avoid some of the difficulties our republic has faced 250 years later. But if it's like an international mission where they've got the government set, no, nah, I'm staying home. That's fair. <laughs> That's for no no UN on the moon kind of thing. No, not for me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well thought out. Um, I would say no. I I love astronomy. It's definitely my favorite science, but I don't really want to go live up there. Mm-hmm. So I, I think the world needs enough uh, problem solving here. So <laughs> happy to stay here and <laughs> in my nice little bubble on the earth. <laughs> no, that's fair. That's fair. I don't know what I do. I think I think I might be willing to do the moon just because, you know, I could still see Earth. If it's Mars, that's, uh, I'd get real homesick. I'm not a homesick kind of guy, but I like, you know, beautiful scenery. And I feel like the, the, the deserts of Mars are just kind of, eh, no thanks. Didn't they just discover like three underground lakes on Mars? Isn't that, didn't that just happen today? I, you know more than me. What happened? Oh, I think I saw this. I think that they discovered like three underground lakes, but they're not super sure if they're liquid and there's a really high salt content, but there are three (laughs) underground seemingly liquid bodies. Seemingly. I'll, I'll, you know what? That might change things. I might just know go each friend on Mars. (laughs) I'm going to find my, I'm going to partner myself up with the best oil man here in Texas and go, go drill for water. I'll be the new, I'll be a water baron. Oh, that's, and that's my calling. Our maybe calling. you could be appointed as the first chief justice of the Mars Supreme Court. Ooh. There you go. Just saying. Hard to pass up, Stanton. Oh, that is hard to pass up. Well, do I have as much power or do I have as much power as the chief justice today? Or are we talking like what they're supposed to be? 
uh, the chief justice in like 1803 had the same amount of power as the one does today just about so oh no i don't think (laughs) i think one of those nine members of the court have far more influence on what happens in our country today than in 1803 yeah okay that's true right so are we talking like john roberts we're talking john marshall (laughs) (laughs) this is actually bringing up a lot of great points thank you for the amazing segue mr cody um (laughs) we are going to talk a little bit about the court and its role in today's society but what we really want to start off is what what is a buzz on everyone's minds is rbg um It's brought about by her passing. Uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, for those of you who don't know and are living under a rock, she was an associate justice of the Supreme Court uh, since 1993. She was appointed by Bill Clinton. Yes, Bill Clinton. Um, She's been hailed as a pioneer for women in the legal profession, criticized for her seemingly blatant liberal jurisprudence of the law, and um, she's respected as being tough as nails and remarkably intelligent by her peers on the court, especially uh, one of her very dear friends, late friends, uh, Antonin Scalia. And that's about as far as I know about RPG and about as much as I'd be able to tell my students. Cody, Christy, do you, would you take, would you care to explain a little bit more about this very formidable jurist? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've, I've studied her life on some levels just because so few women have served at this point on the U.S. Supreme Court. So it's always interesting to see, you know, what their career looked like and what got them there. Um, one sort of little tiny rabbit trail I'll take and don't worry, I'll get back, is for all the people who are saying this is Ruth Bader Ginsburg's seat, um, how dare someone with her opposite legal theory views be appointed to the seat. It's interesting to note whose seat Ruth Bader Ginsburg took she was appointed to take the seat of Byron White, who, as I'm not sure any people know, he was one of the two no votes or dissenting votes on Roe versus Wade, which obviously was quite the difference in views from Ruth Bader Ginsburg herself. So it just kind of goes to show no seat belongs to any particular justice. The seat belongs to the American people. But um, while anyone who knows me is going to know, I have a lot of disagreement with Ruth Bader Ginsburg's legal philosophy and the way she viewed the Constitution. I think one reason she has so much respect um, in some ways from people on both sides of the aisle is because of her original work for women's rights. Um, Her original work struck down a ton of laws across the nation on gender discrimination. And in fact, um, she and her husband actually did some of the cases together, which I think is pretty cool. That's neat. Yeah. And, and And then she got to argue before the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, they kind of took attack of attacking um, gender discrimination as it discriminated against men, incidentally, was one of their one of their best cases. And then it kind of opened the judiciary's eyes to the fact that it was mostly targeted at women. And so she struck down all this precedent and all these laws around the nation where women really weren't given equality under the law. So I think whether you're the right, the left, somewhere in the middle, um, constitutional originalist, or believe it's a living, breathing document, um, you're going to respect that she struck down a lot of gender discrimination. In my view, she went way too far. <laughs> and then, and that's a problem when you focus solely on discrimination against one group of people. If you don't truly understand equality, you go so far as to say, well, now this group is the preeminent group of people. And she exalted women's rights over the rights of unborn children and other vulnerable groups like that, which 
is why many people who are constitutional originalists think she went way too far. Certainly, certainly, you know, complicated figure as most people are in history, right? But a lot of good, not, you know, a lot of good for, for the ideas of liberty and equality and justice, but maybe not so much on every piece of liberty. Cody, do you have any thoughts on this? I know well, you- so, I mean, like Christy, I'm going to echo uh, RBG's early career. As a public interest attorney, she is one of two public interest attorneys to ever serve on the court, obviously Thurgood Marshall being the other. But she took what Thurgood Marshall, Thurgood Marshall basically pioneered for public interest litigation and adapted that to women. So what Thurgood Marshall did for Black Americans by setting up certain cases, by putting the right cases before the court, she did the exact same thing for women. So I think she argued six separate cases before the Supreme Court, which as a public interest attorney is amazing, and won five of them, which is an insane win percentage. Her entire strategy was oftentimes to bring cases showing where there was an equal protection violation of men in order to get a balance between men and women to be able to expand equal protection work. So very genius strategy. Now, uh, much like Thurgood Marshall, once she got onto the court, she was able to, she was more ends justified as opposed to means. And as somebody who's an originalist and a constitutionalist and libertarian, process is very important to me. It's really important that we are asking the right questions, that we're looking to you know, the original public meaning of the constitution, that we're looking to what the founders and framers stated. Uh, and Justice Ginsburg focused a little bit more explicitly on the outcome. And um, I think Justice Scalia once said something to the effect of uh, what's not to like about her except her view on the law, which I think is really <laughs> interesting. Uh, a quote and kind of highlights their friendship uh, and their collegiality. But so that was that would be my main concern. And there's cases, you know, she served on the court for 27 years. There are hundreds of cases that she heard where, you know, I don't necessarily agree with her analysis. However, her career as a public interest attorney, her work in the equal protection space was incredibly important. And, you know, I think it's really interesting that, you know, she had such a profound effect on our legal system in multiple different ways. Well, certainly, certainly noteworthy. I think, I don't think anyone, I mean, she's, I think I read this, uh, I might have read this incorrectly. She's the first woman to have her casket in the Capitol. Mm. Did I hear that right? Yeah. Yes, that's, that's correct. And, and that's the first that's, woman and the first Jewish person as well. And that's not insignificant. That's, 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 that's no, that, that is worthy. All of her work that she's done, I think is worthy. And even, even if you no, know, we here can talk about how wrong she was until our, until our, our tonsils are are swollen with 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 anger, but I don't think any of us would say that she had any malintent behind any of her decisions. As most justices don't, I can't I can't imagine anything that she would want more than than justice for all. Even if I like how you said that, Cody, she would justify whatever she needed to make that happen. You know, that's 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 would be characteristic of someone who who would fight for a worthy cause as a public interest attorney would, but maybe not. Hold on. For, oh, okay. <laughs> Some of us fight for, I'm a public interest attorney and I fight for constitutional originalism. The, the means 
uh-huh. are important. And then uh-huh. that's how we get to the ends. Otherwise, there's no stick by which to measure. If we're just measuring on what I think is important, then that's not how we run a country. You can't just decide things are, what's the, this is the most important issue. So that's the issue we care about. That's why means matter. So hold on, easy now. Uh, that's, that's fair. I'll, <laughs> I'll retract, I'll retract. But don't tell me you wouldn't fight tooth and nail to protect the rights of, of the Second Amendment. Oh, absolutely. Well, I would fight tooth and nail to protect your natural right to self-defense, which happens to be protected by the Second Amendment. There yeah. we go. That's I, I think part of the difference comes down to literally how some of these justices or attorneys um, see the Constitution itself. And if you want so badly to protect this one group of people or this specific right that you believe people in America are entitled to, and you don't really see it in the Constitution itself, but you think you can read some intent or some extra word into it. That's what you see often. I mean, honestly, the liberal side of the court doing, Ruth Bader Ginsburg was on that side of the court. You see them interpreting intent into it that they want to find there. Or you see them finding a passage that surely if the Constitution is a living, breathing document, today they would have meant X. And, and that's a problem because you you can put a lot more of your own personal preferences and rights you'd rather exalt over other ones based on your own prioritization. Uh, and it just gets dangerous because then it really is based on who sits on the court instead of when you get into textualism and originalism, it's really based on not my personal opinion and what I want to see, but what the constitution and the founders actually said, what they actually stated was their intent. Um, and it's not as impossible to find as some people think it is. So Textualism and originalism actually works if you are faithful to carrying it out. And then Supreme Court is much more consistent when you have a majority of justices who believe in that and the American people can get a lot more predictable decisions. And that, that I, could not have, I could not have explained activism versus uh, original, textual originalism better, right? Uh, RBG. Right, you could have. <laughs> I, I don't know. I, RBG was an activist, right? She right. had a she had a, an, a goal, an outcome, and she was going to make the Constitution fit that outcome. Whereas, you know, someone like Scalia, he you know he wasn't perfect in original textualism or textual originalism, however you want to interpret it. He wasn't perfect, but he at least had this idea of the text and the original public meaning of the words, how everyone understood those phrases to mean back when the law was written, that's what matters, not what I think. And this leads us into who Trump has uh, uh, picked to replace her. Um, A Seventh Circuit Court judge and a Notre Dame law professor, I didn't know this, Amy Mm -hmm. Coney Barrett. Um, Cohen. Cohen? Cohen? Kona, I could have swore. It, I, was it Coney? I, it's Coney, yeah. Oh, yeah. never mind. I, I was you pretty sure it's Coney. Like, man, maybe. I just call man. her ACB now. I've moved. I've moved past the names. Way to do it. <laughs> we're all we're all ready to the acronym. <laughs> but Judge Barrett. Um, there we well, go. <laughs> Judge Barrett. We'll be we'll be respectful and, and honorific. Um, both her critics and her allies oppose and support her for supposedly the same reason. It appears that she might be an Antonin Scalia clone, the late justice who died in 2016, and the one whom she clerked for when he was on the court. And again, this is where my knowledge kind of ends. I looked up a little bit of her, some of her decisions while she was on um, the, the Seventh Circuit and while she was in Indiana's state court system and district court. 
Um, that's as far as I know. Do you guys know anything more about uh, about Barrett? Yeah, I mean, she's a very interesting person to study. Um, she she certainly has a lot of respect at Notre Dame, where she teaches. One recent article, I think it was in Newsweek or USA Today, I'm not sure which, a number of her students all wrote about her and they said, we don't all approach the law the same way she does, but here is why you couldn't ask for a more brilliant or kind or appropriate choice for the US Supreme Court. So, I mean, I think some of the articles coming out about her from those who know her best are very, very insightful. Um, perhaps my favorite one was written by Noah Feldman, who's a law professor at Harvard. And he, he was also a US Supreme Court clerk at the same time that Amy Coney Barrett was. He clerked for, I think it was Stephen Breyer, and she clerked for Scalia, as you said. And he said, in our whole class of 40 clerks, she, and then he named one other woman, were the two most brilliant among our entire class. And he said, I am about as opposite on the law as you could be from her as far as interpreting the constitution and law theory. And he said, but elections have consequences. Donald Trump was elected the president. This is of course the kind of choice he would make. And he would choose a textualist and originalist like Amy Coney Barrett. And if you're going to choose someone like that, there is no one more brilliant and no one more kind and no one who is more dedicated to actually applying her legal theory faithfully um, despite her personal views. So, I mean, I thought that was a very resounding um, measure of praise from someone who's on the complete opposite end of the legal spectrum, who supports a lot more activism in the law and from the bench than Amy Coney Barrett does herself. Um, I'll let Cody talk a little bit. I mean, I could honestly go on I, about I, her I in a do, lot of ways. <laughs> I want to do two things real quick. Chrissy, can you, can you expand on the idea of original textualism? Because we, we've been throwing this out. We, would t we said original public meaning, right? I want to ex just briefly expand on what exactly that means. And then Cody, I want, you, I want, I want, I want to segue to you. I want you to oh, tell no. us why original textualism is good for liberty, oh. good, for, good for our natural rights, right? Because it's not yeah. necessarily always good, but why, why for us as liberty lovers, why we would prefer original textualism over activism. I want to go with Christy and Cody, and then we can have a, kind of a discussion between that. So Christy, what is, yeah. what is original textualism or textual originalism or whatever we want to call this? Absolutely. And there's a lot of angles to originalism and textualism. So I, I dial cover them all. But um, what's interesting to me is most judges, if you're a textualist, you're also an originalist, but it's not always the case. You can be one without the other um, because textualists they go, yes, to the Constitution, but they also go to statutes. And when a statute is brought before them in a case, they look literally at the four corners of the document, the words of that text. It's called textualism for that reason. And they often don't put very much weight onto the intent of the legislature or other kind of esoteric discussions about, you know, why this happened at that time or all those other maybe history and things like that um, surrounding the law, but are not actually a part of the law itself. So textualists will take a statute and say, I'm going to look at this as it was written. If Congress intended to do something else, well, then I guess they should have done <laughs> that thing or they can go back and fix it. You saw that in some of the Supreme Court decisions that came out this year, a number of the judges on that more textualist wing specifically said, if Congress wants to change this, they can go and alter the statute. They can pass something new. And that's a textualist way of literally letting the legislature do their job and saying a change to the text is a job of the legislative branch, not of the executive branch to interpret some intent in there that's not written into it. Um, originalism, 
focuses more on the constitution itself. And it takes that document and it says, like some of the things you were explaining, Stanton, what were the dictionary meanings at the time? Or what did the founders write about their intent? So originalism actually does go a little bit more into intent and actual text of the constitution, but originalism limits its seeking of intent to the constitution because it cares so much about what the founders meant in their era and and then they take that and say okay how does it apply today they do not believe it's a living breathing document but they do believe its original intent can be applied to our problems today and so bringing the two together then is looking at something like um the second amendment right the most uh, heavily debated uh, right like uh, you know uh, what, what, what? What's the what's the middle clause in the Second Amendment for the maintenance of a militia? The one that that liberals always regulated look, militia being yeah, necessary yeah, yeah, to the yeah, security yeah. of a free state. So there, there's our text. So hey, the text says this, but original might be original textualism is this idea of okay, yes, it says that, but what did they mean by that? In 1787, you got to go to what do they call it? The, the canons? Is that what it's referred to? This idea of legal grammar rules and legal writing and oh, how canons that, of construction. Thank you, canons of construction. That's exactly it. That that you have to rely on 1787 dictionaries to understand what the blazes they're talking about, right? So originalism, textualism, original. So textualism. those two things are slightly different. Mm-hmm. Canons of construction refers to uh, the way that the court has interpreted statutes, but also the constitution to ensure that, you know, every word in the statute has meaning that certain clauses don't, you know, audit, you can't define a clause that would contradict a previous clause. Otherwise that would have been pointless. Mm-hmm. Those are kind of canons of construction. When you're looking at definitions of words, that's original public meaning. So okay. originalism really is textualism plus. So it's, you're reading the text and then you're looking at the original public meaning of that text. So you know, what did the word, I just did an op-ed about the word arms. It encompasses knives, and a lot of people don't talk about that. But the idea there is you look, okay, well, what did arms mean in 1791, 1789? And determining that question in order to figure out what is a protected arm under the Second Amendment. Okay. And that, one thing, that, too, I'll just, I'll just throw in there since we brought up dictionaries and we're talking about Amy Coney Barrett. She said um, to her students, actually, is one thing she teaches in class, that while you can look at dictionaries, especially dictionaries of the time the statute or the constitution was written, to determine intent, she teaches them that even dictionaries can be biased sources because they also were written by humans, often with a specific motivation or goal Mm. themselves. And so even among textualists and originalists, you will see some difference of which type of sources they may trust more or how closely they, yes, they'll use the source, but they'll also, you know, add their, their own brain to it and their own thoughts. Or there's got to be a grammarian historian on this kind of stuff, right? Yeah. <laughs> so Cody, why is this better for Liberty Lovers? Is it better? Am I just making that up or... Um, it's going to be a net benefit because the founders and framers were liberty lovers. So it's not always, originalism is not always going to bring you to the answer that you hope it does. And if it does, then you're doing originalism wrong. There are certain things that the founders and framers were totally fine with the federal government doing. There are certain laws that were totally okay during, you know, the founding era. 
even with the protections that were written into the constitution. So if you are a, you know, pure hardcore anarcho-libertarian, originalism isn't going to be, you know, all and above for you. Um, even if you're pure conservative, I mean, originalism is not going to always bring you to the answer to your question. However, it does two things. First, the founders and framers overwhelmingly were liberty lovers were overwhelmingly deferential to the individual over the state, the, the Fed, the federal state or the individual states. So it, it's going to have a net benefit. The other side is it is a defined, constrained system. Federal government is a government of enumerated powers. Every person in the country should be able to sit down, read the constitution and know exactly what the federal government can and can't do. And if we can limit it to that, then you can at least better plan your life for federal government intervention, as opposed to now where I don't think anybody can name a single thing that the federal government isn't involved in. Thanks, I mean, Congress it's Claude. just about, yeah, <laughs> either the federal government or the state government is involved in literally every aspect of your life. So it isn't always going to be the most free construction. It isn't going to be pure freedom, unadulterated freedom all the time but it is a defined system and it like like we had talked about in our constitution episode or in our articles episode you'd be hard pressed to do better even today with a, with trying to come to a consensus on such a difficult topic so it, it is the founding document of our country it gives us our north star it is what we should always be navigating by and and that's what originalism really does Okay. So, hypothetically, very hypothetically, Constitution gets a major overhaul by anti-liberty people. Originalism is now a problem for for us. Is that is that what I'm hearing? Or um, uh, textualism? Sorry, textualism. Yes and no. So here's the thing, right? I mean, as an originalist, as a constitutionalist, if you amend the Constitution, I might disagree as a policy matter with your amendment. But that doesn't mean it's not a valid amendment to the Constitution. If you go through the appropriate process and you change something that's in there, that's how our system of government works. I mean, it's designed to avoid mob rule and to highlight reason and to highlight liberty. But if you follow the process, you follow the process. But that's, but that's what I'm saying, right? And, th- and this is the potential I'm talking about. If that process is followed and we get a series of amendments that start stripping away our or start uh, that begin to ignore our natural rights. Okay, we follow the process. Our our northern star now points us towards anti-liberty. Textualism becomes a problem now, doesn't it? Following this this document now is is bad, wouldn't it? Am I no. am, am I am I missing something here? <laughs> yeah, because it's again, it's never about the ends. It's or it's sometimes about the ends, but the means are important. If we abandon textualism, then we're just arguing for policy like everybody else is. But we shouldn't be arguing for policy just generally. If we're arguing from the Constitution, we should found it in founding principles and in constitutional principles. Now, as a matter of policy, could you argue that the amendment was bad? Sure, look at prohibition, right? I mean, that was repealed three amendments later. It's Those are policy conversations that the country can and should have. But that doesn't make textualism a problem. It just means that they follow the process and they've altered the structure of our system of government. And here's like the biggest problem, in my opinion. 
um, if you depart from textualism, no matter what the constitutional amendments um, are and whatever is passed, which thankfully it's very difficult to <laughs> amend the constitution and I, I can't imagine it's gonna be done any time in the near future. But the reason you want that system no matter what is because otherwise you get legislation from the bench and you get judicial activism. Mm -hmm. So if you have the system of textualism, it, it's not the judge's job to sit there and correct bad law. It is literally their job to interpret the law as written and as originally intended. So if, if a person were more interested in actually changing law because it's bad, the judicial branch would not be a branch they should, <laughs> they should participate in. They should go get elected to Congress who can actually has the power to change the laws that the judges have to interpret. But if judges are like, no, 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 this is terrible. We're going to go change it. Then they become the legislative branch and everything gets blurred. And we've seen a ton of that happen. And that's where it goes so south. And Judge Barrett actually talked about this. She actually has a quote where she said, um, I think it was in her confirmation to the Seventh Circuit in 2018. And she said that um, judges shouldn't twist the law to bring it in line or match with their, their own convictions. So what she's talking about there is she's talking about originalism, textualism, in a sense. She's saying, it's not up to me to mold the law to what I think it should be. And I think this was specifically in response to whether or not her religion would interfere with her adjudications. And she said, no, it doesn't take any effect into my adjudications. I look at the law, I look at the text, and I make my decision based on that. And that's what judges should do. And that's what justices should do if they are confirmed to the Supreme Court. And we're going to talk about this here in a little bit, this whole thing about her religion. Um, but just to kind of wrap this up real quickly, Textualism is an inherently restricting aspect on judges, on jurists themselves, even if it's not a restriction on, say, the people or the mob. Because if the people or the mob can change the text, then, okay, we've got, now we have a new problem to deal with. But it is, in fact, restricting on judges themselves, or it should be, right? Is that what I'm basically hearing? Yeah. Okay. I All right. So that clears that up. So it offers predictability. Right. I like that. <laughs> or it should, right? It should. Predictability there. is a very important feature of law. It really is. I'll, I'll trust that. I'll believe that. <laughs> <laughs> so Judge Barrett is a textualist. She's supposedly also an originalist. Um, but she's going to face some real serious um, challenges in her Senate con, uh, confirmation. And we, can, and we know that because um, you know, going back all the way to uh, Judge Gorsuch, right, Justice Gorsuch, his confirmation hearing, I don't, I don't think that was as bad as it could have been. I think he got his nose bloodied a little bit, and, you know, a couple things happened in the Senate rules, but rel relatively speaking, he was totally non-controversial. It's when we get Judge Kavanaugh where Democrats start to, uh, start to come out and say, we are going to pull out everything we can to stop him one way or another. Whether it's true or not, this is what we're going to do. And I have a feeling it's going to be just as bad here. So let's, let's, let's go ahead and rewind here a little bit. When, uh, when we talk about Senate confirmations, and, and here's our little educational piece for everybody. Not that you're not getting educated from everything else, but, you know, <laughs> Professor Skrgenic is now arriving. Um, the Senate must provide advice and consent on the confirmation of appointments by the president, including justices to the court. 
Now, what that means is you need 50% plus one of senators to say, yeah, Mr. President, go ahead. This person can serve in this position. Now, that's literally just 50% plus one. Historically, however, especially over the past, I'll say, 100, 150 years or so, uh, the Senate has had something called the filibuster. And the filibuster is the ability to talk a, an idea to death, right? Um, I want to propose this piece of legislation. Okay, I hate that idea, but I know that my side of the Senate, that we're going to lose this, so I'm going to talk and talk and talk because the Senate doesn't have rules against talking literally, deliberately. And so I'll just talk it to death and people just give up, right? Now, the Senate has something called Rule 22. Rule 22 is uh, basically the motion for cloture. Basically put, motion for cloture is we're forcing you to shut up and we're going to vote on this, right? It, it ends a filibuster. Now, there are three types of filibusters or there used to be, or there used to be just one type of filibuster. Now there's three because of how things have happened. The first type of filibuster is when, is what we call the legislative filibuster. I don't like this proposed law, but I don't have the votes to stop it. So I'm going to talk it to death. Okay. Ending a legislative filibuster requires two thirds of, no, is it two thirds or is it three fifths? I think it's three fifths now. Anyway, it takes like 60, yeah, it, it is three-fifths. It takes 60 senators to end a legislative filibuster. And that's why most filibusters are successful. Very rarely do you have 60 senators all get together and say, yes, we'll, we all agree with each other. Now, that same threshold, 60 senators, used to also apply to presidential nominations. However, under the Obama administration, there are a couple things that happened, basically put, Republicans in the Senate started to stonewall a lot of Obama's nominees. Whether they were justices, judges, doesn't matter. They just weren't going to do a lot. Okay, They, were, they weren't going to have any votes. And so the Democrats who were in charge of the Senate at that time said, we're going to change the rules. We're going to change Rule 22 to issue cloture, to end debate, to end a filibuster on nominations by the president that are not Supreme Court it's just going to be a simple majority, 51, 51 senators, okay? So the Democrats start this process in 2014 of getting rid of the filibuster for presidential nominations. Now we come fast forward to 2016, Neil Gorsuch under a Republican Senate. Democrats start to say, we're not going to approve him, okay? Which is not unprecedented, but also doesn't happen very often. Most of the time, the Senate has just said yes to the president's confirmation. It usually, usually, there are times where they have said no, but it's rare. They were going to say no to Gorsuch. It doesn't matter what Gorsuch's qualifications were, which are impeccable. They were just going to say no. And so the Republicans under the leadership of Mitch McConnell said, cool, we're going to do what Democrats did in 2014, and we're taking the filibuster away from you on the Supreme Court. So. Now, confirming a Supreme Court justice and ending filibuster on Supreme Court justices is literally just 51 votes, which is why it's far easier. Long story short, and this is my point, why is this so damn controversial? How do we get to such a level where we have to change the rules to the game to make the game work? And 
the confirmation hearings are rancid. They're horrible to watch, right? Kavanaugh's was just, there are a lot of reasons why Kavanaugh's was bad to watch uh, on, on, from, from both perspectives. It was just bad. Why is it so bad now? Why are we having to change the rules? Why are these confirmation hearings so ugly? What's going on? I mean, politics. <laughs> politics is often the reason why things are so ugly. And, you know, I'll always take the political angle on it. But part of the reason the Republicans, you know, they were giving a very hard time back in 2014, around that time period, um, to the Democrats and getting through a lot of the lower judicial nominees. Obama was president, but for a significant portion of his presidency, the Republicans had control of the Senate. And since judicial nominees have to be confirmed with the consent of the Senate, um, historically, Republicans have tended to say, well, we'll just go with whoever the president wants as a matter of I mean, I can't think of the right word, but they're almost just being polite. And they're saying, you're the president, you have the right to pick, unless there's a serious problem, we'll go along with it. The Democrats have almost never been that way on Supreme Court nominees. You'll see a lot more far-right justices get not confirmed by the Democrats. So it's kind of like what had been simmering for a really, really long time. And finally, Mitch McConnell, who cares deeply about judges, kind of said, okay, hey, this is enough. Yes, the Republican, I'm sorry, yes, the American people elected Obama as president. They also elected a Republican majority Senate. So we are going to use the filibuster to stop a lot of these judicial appointees that we believe is going to alter the federal judiciary for decades to come. So that's what they did. And the Democrats got super mad. And that's why they killed that rule. And they believed that Hillary Clinton would win in 2016. And their goal was then at that point to eliminate the filibuster um, for Supreme Court nominees. So they planned on doing it themselves, but the Republicans just beat them to it. The, See, actually, I, I, I don't think this is all that new. I, I think that it's just televised now. Mm-hmm. Um, so Justice Thomas was, went through a, a fairly toxic confirmation oh. hearing in 1991. Yeah. And, and that one's, we all remember, or, or at least have seen videos of. Um, so, that was, you know, 28 years ago. So that's not that long, but I, I actually went and pulled the data on like nominations and denials and no actions. So Merrick Garland, obviously, which is the famous no action. It's never happened ever in the history. He was the 10th. <laughs> it had happened nine times before him that the Senate had refused to vote. Um, of 163 nominations to the Supreme Court specifically, only 126 have been confirmed and only 119 of those actually served. Um, seven of them basically got confirmed, and they were like, yeah, no, I'm good. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna <laughs> to avoid that court. Wow. So, wow. It's, it's not uncommon. So um, there's been 12 rejections, 12 withdrawals, three postpones. So it's also not all that common that there's – so in one sense, it's Merrick Garland is not an outlier, right, and there being 10 no votes, but it's also not that – common for this filibuster to have been used for the Supreme Court just by the data. I mean, but tw- that that's, like? that's 12 rejections over 200 years. And right. one of those happened with the first court. So the first rejection is um, John Rutledge, who gets a recess appointment when John Jay retires. So while the Senate is in recess, the president can appoint and then it'll go to consent of the Senate. So uh, John Jay retires Senate's in recess. President appoints John Rutledge to the Supreme Court. And as soon as the Senate comes back, they immediately reject him. <laughs> <laughs> so he's the first rejection, which is in whatever that is in 18, 
I don't have the year. I don't know it off the top of my head. So one of the first appointees to the Supreme Court. And ironically, he's also the only uh, recess appointee to ever be rejected. But it's not like this never happened, but it also wasn't all that common. I mean, this is pretty much a, not a rubber stamping process, but generally speaking, when the president nominates somebody, unless there's some very specific reason for them to not be confirmed, then they're confirmed to the point where initially these were all done by voice votes. They didn't even record the numbers. Mm -hmm. It wasn't until uh, Nixon that you get numbered votes for Supreme Court confirmations with the exception of, and I thought this was really odd, Thomas Jefferson had like all but two of his eight nominees, or Jackson, sorry, had all but two of his eight nominees be actual counted votes, which was a huge outlier. So it's not really until Nixon that this even becomes um, popular. So I, there is vitriol early on too. I mean, when you look back in some of the nominations in the 1800s, they're throwing the 1800s version of shade at, at judges and you know nominated justices. So I, I think that we put a lot more stock in these conversations now, potentially. I think that your common man is involved in watching the process because they view it as more important now. But I don't know that politics is all that much different today than it's been for 150 years. I, I, I'll, I'll, I'll actually be with Christy here, and I think they have changed a little bit. I, I, I won't disagree. I think, I mean, if we want to talk about vitriolic uh, elections, we only need to see the one between Jefferson and Adams. That was hellish. That, uh, yeah. makes, that makes 2016 look like clean, yeah. a clean election. Um, but I am with Chris here. That the, I don't know if it's because you know, politics has gotten worse. I do think that politics has dramatically changed. And I think it has to do primarily with who is in the Senate. And that's, this is not Republicans in the Senate or Democrats in the Senate. It's about how the Senate itself is structured. And, and, I, and I've talked to you guys to this until your ears fell off. I know I have. It's one of my passion, angry things here. In the past, um, we'll say 60 years, the United States Senate has become very polarized, meaning um, if you are a Republican, you almost never reach across the aisle to do deals with the other side and vice versa with Democrats. Okay, But it wasn't that long ago. We're talking 1960s. It wasn't that long ago. Um, I, I cannot remember his name. He was a senator from Colorado, a, a staunch uh, a conservative, kind of like the arch conservative. cannot remember his name. I'll have to go back and look at it. And he actually floor managed a democratic bill simply because the democrat was out of the office that day and as a colleague he floor managed his colleague's bill right there was a lot more across the aisle there's a lot more compromise there's a lot there there was that rational debate idea okay you don't see that anymore you don't it's very much polarized and i think that polarization is due to the fact that the states that they represent have become more geographically uh, uniformed in their politics. Colorado is becoming more blue. Kansas is becoming more red. And why does that matter? Uh, the senators are naturally going to represent the population of these more politically uniformed states, right? They're, 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 they're representatives of the people. But they weren't always, and this is my point. When 
we passed the 17th Amendment, which made the election of senators go from the state governments would choose them to the people of the state choose them, senators became nothing more than glorified representatives. They became uh, essentially enslaved to the voice of the people, just as the House of Representatives was. Well, why is that a bad thing? I think it's a bad thing because we lost this ability for senators to detach themselves from the politics of any one group of people and instead focus on the interests of their states. Am I... Am I making any sense here? Yeah, you are. I mean, I think that's an interesting, interesting perspective. Um, I don't know if I don't I, know I, if I, I, I know three percent. I'm, I'm about I'm about ready to advocate for the repeal of the Seventeenth Amendment here. I'm getting that close, <laughs> but am I insane for thinking that the that the popular election of senators has made them more polarized? Well, I mean, I definitely think that. The fact that some states are absolutely committed to, I mean, honestly, one political party or the other certainly does give some senators the ability to decline to work with the other side. Like if they don't have to, if their state will never elect a Republican and they're a Democrat or vice versa, well, then why would they reach across the aisle? I mean, unfortunately, I actually think a lot of it comes from the fact that too many of them stay in the Senate for way too long. Um, (laughs) and so I think they have such high name ID and so many connections, so much money, they become very difficult to beat, um, in a race internally in their party or outside of their party. And I I think they can just kind of do what they want, um, on some levels, but even beyond that, what I, I personally think is the real reason for the great polarization in the parties is that there's so there's such huge differences in what the two parties stand for today. And I don't mean your average Republican or Democrat on the street. I mean, the elected officials, like you see a lot of people, in the Democrat party who are senators right now, um, literally advocating for socialism. That is not what the Democrat party used to do. And you, you just see giant swings between views of government and how it's supposed to operate. And I think when you have that divergent of views on a government and its role, it is very difficult to work across the aisle and be more bipartisan. Yeah. Yeah. I I know a lot of people have advocated against the 17th amendment. It's kind of like a popular thing, not lumping you in with this Stanton, but it's kind of like a become a popular thing to do for kind of the conservative side. Mm-hmm. Um, the 17th Amendment kind of just codified what a lot of states were already doing anyway, even though the state let, so it wasn't required that the state legislature picked the person. It was required that the state legislature picked how to pick the senator. That's fair. Um, and a, a lot of state legisl- les- legislatures by the end of the 1800s were already basically soliciting the advice of the people, even though, they, so it was kind of just a rubber stamp process. Mm-hmm. Um, Politics has has always been heated and controversial. So there's, when I was looking at the nominations, there are nominations dating back to the 1800s, which were decided by one vote. Stanley Matthews was confirmed by a 24 to 23 vote in 1881. So it's not like that's not common. Also, let's not forget somebody was literally caned on the Senate floor in the middle of the 1800s <laughs> to the point where they had to make it to where you can't do that to other senators. Anymore. So my modern polarization theory is complete junk is what you're saying. 
Yeah, I think it comes in waves. I don't think you're completely off. I, I think it's a mix. I think it's, yes, right now it's much more polarized than it maybe was 10, 20 years ago. But have we had waves of great deep polarization? I mean, during slavery and some of the other times exactly. that Cody's talking about. I mean, yes, American politics has certainly gone through this and survived it before. But I don't know that it's constant. So that's, I think, why it can feel that it's a modern thing. I think okay. the key is it's twofold. One, we feel the polarization so much more heavily when we feel government involved in our daily lives or we or people want government involved in their daily lives, even on the other side, right? So for us on, on the liberty side, we feel it's more, there's more vitriol. It's more personal when it's an attack against our individual liberty. And the other side feels it's, it's more, uh, or side, I mean, there's not really sides. People who want more government intervention feel it's personal when that's being denied to them and they feel like they really need it. And those waves come in moments where we're talking about the role of government in our lives. You're talking about, you know, slavery and you're talking about reconstruction era. You're talking about, you know, 1960s. These are, these are points in our history where we're talking about what role the government plays in our daily life, not in a very simple sense of, you know, tax is always important to people, but we're not talking about minor tax increases or things like that. We're talking about passage of the, the anti-slavery amendments. We're talking about these massive changes in our government system. And that's when, in my view, it's not that government gets more vitriolistic. It's that people are paying a lot more attention. You're not paying attention to the government and what people are arguing about what's going on when there's not some sort of huge event that's, you know, you're concerned about the future in. That's when you start paying attention. I think you guys are absolutely right. And I think I've just been properly corrected. I think, <laughs> I think we are in the midst of that kind of heightened awareness wave. I like how you guys put that heightened awareness wave. Um, and part of the problem, the reason why we do have heightened awareness is because government is involved in everything we do. And in the past 10 years, the Supreme Court has decided some major cases, let's go 12 years so that I can get Heller in there, uh, has decided some major cases that infect, infect, oh, <laughs> affect, <laughs> affect those very important areas of a lot of our lives. So people are paying a lot of attention to the Supreme Court right now because their decisions, whether a law is unconstitutional or constitutional, has a big effect on our daily lives and how we view the country. So I think that's why the Supreme Court is so important to just about everybody right now. You are echoing exactly what's in my mind right now. And, and I know we don't have a, a lot of time to go super in depth into this, but the court is scrutinized because it does so much. You're 100% right. It's basically a second legislature, right? It, they, the ruling from the bench often is, is passing down uh, uh, quasi-legislation, rules that affect us. And we saw this perhaps very, very forcefully in the, um, uh, in, the in the desegregation and the integration era, right? Where the court was literally issuing rules on how to bus people, okay, bus students. Um, but that, that, the power to do that hasn't disappeared since the 60s, right? It, it, it might've gone dormant perhaps, but it's still there. And the worst part about this second legislature is that it's unelected. 
right? There's only nine of them. But one of my good buddies compares them to the the nine ring wraiths, to the Nazgul from Lord of the Rings, right? I thought that was I thought that was quite quite witty. But because of that, because of that immense power to just issue rulings from the bench, issue laws unelected, it makes the court just as political as Congress. In which case, your judicial philosophy is not the only thing that matters anymore. It is, in fact, your religious background. It is, in fact, what associations you belong to. It is, in fact, your personal character that matters. It shouldn't. We're right. We're textless. Who you are should not matter at all. Well, personal character matters. You serve for life and good beha- with good behavior. So you've got to be a good person. Good behavior has, been, has not entirely been defined, and I think you know that just as well as I do. Okay? Let's, let's hold up there. It's fair. But the idea is that they can, if they can just rule how they want from the bench, then your personal background does matter. Now, for someone like you know, Judge Barrett, because she is a textualist, she does her best to not allow her background to influence her decisions. But, you know, if I'm someone who is a fan of RGB, and I believe that that's what judges do, that they are activists, I'm petrified of Judge Barrett. I'm petrified of her philosophy and of her, uh, what is she, Catholic, of her Catholic background, right? I'm afraid of going back to an age where women didn't have rights and so on and so forth, which is absurd because that's not how Barrett operates right? Barrett operates according to the text. But if this is the power of courts, I would be, you'd have every right to be nervous. Well, and I think, honestly, I think presuming she gets confirmed, <laughs> it'll, it'll take several years, I think, for the American people to understand what it, what it actually looks like to have a textualist, originalist majority court. Um, I, I hope we can say that we do have that majority. I think there's one or two judges on there that it's kind of debatable um, if they are or aren't. Um, but I think it's likely we at least have a five to four majority if she gets confirmed. And, and if that is the case, we could, I, th- I suppose, debate later if a couple of the judges really are or Wait not. Who, who on the, I mean, I, I won't make you call out any judge, justices. <laughs> I'm trying to think of like who in the, because that's, because you get a 6-3, right? I mean, with right. Roberts, so you kind of have a 5-4 on, on a lot of issues, but. Right. Well, that, no, exactly. I would agree with you on that yeah. and we can talk more offline later, but um, <laughs> about who, but, but I think the point is like the American people have not seen that. Most people who are alive today haven't seen textualist originalism, like come down in most decisions. They've seen. They've not seen a limited reason. court before. Exactly. So all they know is a legislating court, an activist court. And so, yeah, if they think the other side now has that same power, they don't realize we don't even believe that's a role of the court. So I guess they just have to watch and see. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's, I mean, part of the reason we've never had a textualist originalist court, like, it's just never been a thing ever. Like, it's not even that it's just new to this generation or new to the, like, the first courts were textualist because that was, I mean, you were deciding things the day of. Like, <laughs> you know, those early Supreme Courts are part of our, you know, originalist history. Um, but it's pretty quick that you get a shift on the court and they start kind of legislating from the bench. And you really don't see, I can't think of a, a hardcore, true, originalist uh, majority on the court 
since originalism mattered or was a thing. I mean, outside of the period which defined originalism, really. But, and it's going to be even more interesting and compelling in, in a place where government is involved so much in our lives and where the Supreme Court is going to have to tangle with a lot of really tough questions because government continues to inch itself further and further uh, into our daily lives and can, continues to grow. So it really could mean a very different mix up. And let's not forget, I mean, we're talking about the constitutional decisions and whatnot. There's a lot of other divisions when you're talking about criminal justice issues, when you're talking about um, fourth and fifth amendment issues, the court splits very differently. So, um, you know, Judge Barrett will be a different kind of jurist in that sense. And that's where a lot of people think that she'll follow Scalia in his kind of criminal justice, fourth, fifth amendment views. But I mean, just because you clerked for somebody doesn't mean that you follow their judicial philosophy. So, uh, you know, there's a couple of clerks on the court that were clerks for Justice Kennedy and are not the same jurists that Justice Kennedy was. So, yeah. um, you know, it's not a, a given, but it will be if she is confirmed uh, and it does, it appears that the votes are present minus some other form of uh, delay. <laughs> then it, it will really make for a very different makeup of the court. And it'll be, my colleagues and I have been talking about this for a while in the public interest space of, we finally got into a space where even opinions on both sides are often employing either originalism or textualism. Sometimes it's not very well done or it's, it doesn't have the full kind of historical research to it. But I mean, we're seeing this more and more in courts the Ninth Circuit was just arguing about the historical interpretations of carriage laws for the purposes of a Second Amendment case. I mean, when you've got a, an en banc panel, which means 11 Ninth Circuit judges sitting and asking about the history of carriage when it comes to the Second Amendment and looking to statutes from, you know, the 1300s, wow. we're in a different world now. I mean, this is, but this is important because it shows that Judges are understanding one of two things, either that originalism is the way that we do things, and that's how you decide what the Constitution says, and that's how you decide what our founding era documents say, or they've realized that they need to at least tangle with originalism before that they, they can try and employ some other test. And both of those, to me, demonstrate a shift in the right direction for the judiciary as a whole of respecting our founding era, respecting our founding principles, and looking to the Constitution as the guiding star it is, not to the kind of Wilsonian progressive living Constitution where either we'll make it say what we want it to say or it's useless to us. And, you know, hopefully if we continue that shift and we continue to respect the founding fathers and their vision, we can protect more of our natural rights and our natural liberty. So, you know, we've been here. We've examined RGB. We've taken a look at her potential successor, ACB. We're all much more familiar with uh, what kind of jurists they were, the types of philosophy they embraced. Um, we've looked at the, the confirmation process. We've looked at filibusters. We've looked at, uh, we've had a little tit for tat on why we're, we feel so much more political and polarized today. Um, but I think we've come to a nice little place where the court may be in trouble, but the court is in the process of, of hopefully becoming more original. 
Um, we have a lot more to talk about the courts. I know I have some really fun opinions about, uh, you know, John Marshall and judicial review. I've got a whole. This is the second time that we are like I've got, highlighting that we haven't talked about <laughs> Marbury v. Madison yet. I've and got a lot I of things in my fun bag. We're way more excited about this than probably everybody else is. But at some point, I guess we're going to have to do a Marbury v. Madison. We, uh, can, we can push it until after the election, but I'm excited for that. But either way, I don't know what it is we're going to talk about next time. Uh, but whatever it is, it will be self-evident. It will likely also be forgotten. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for joining us today. Please do find us on Twitter and Instagram at SEF underscore pod and on Facebook. And uh, we hope you're listening that wherever you are, you can also find us at Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And with that, we'll see you next time. <laughs>